Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. All right. Hello. Uh, today we have a guest with us. Uh, Trip Krauss is here. And uh, Trip is a journalist who I first met working at uh, KTOO here in Juneau. And uh, Trip, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what are some of the stories you like to pursue and, and kind of your ethos as a journalist? Uh, this should have been a question I asked earlier on, do you, but do you mind if I do my personal introduction? Oh, no, not at all. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate get, get being given that space. Anin Boju, Trip Cross and Dijnika, Nijman, Adiwag, Ojibwe, and Dodum. Hi, I said, uh, I see your light or I see the light in you. Boju is hello. And I said, my name is Trip Krauss and I'm Nijman Adiwaga Ojibwe. Nijman Adiwag is the original Anishinaabe word that two-spirit is derived from. So I identify as a lot of things, Ojibwe, um, queer, trans, uh, Nijman Adiwag, which, and two-spirit for people who don't necessarily know the the whole background and, and cultural behind Nijman Adiwag. Uh, my mom is a member of the Lakutere Band of Lake Superior Chippewa in, I believe it's like she's currently in Hayward, Wisconsin. Uh, I've been a journalist for about 20 years and moved to Alaska in 2016, where I worked for KTO. I met actually both of you, I think, in Juneau. And uh, in 2018, I got a job offer from K- KNBA to come up to Anchorage and be a reporter slash producer and I did and within less than a year I think I was promoted to news director or a newsroom of one so I'm my own boss congratulations uh, <laughs> I don't lines for myself and I don't get hard on myself when I like a story falls through so uh it's really been a, a very it's been a privilege uh to be able to work for an organization that's native owned and operated and share sort of a mission that's in line with mine, which is promoting indigenous stories um, and voices and increasing uh, representation within the media. So stories that I'm interested in um, are subsistence culture, language revitalization, uh, correcting historical context, which can be a big thing. Um, Most recently, I've done a couple of uh, land purchase stories, the Chugach, Corporation recently bought uh, quite a bit of land. I can't remember the number offhand, but um, from the Nature Conservancy and also the Taslina Native Village is trying to buy about 160 acres, I think, of land that has been within the, the ownership of the Catholic Church since about the 1950s or so. And so those are really interesting to me because we're starting to see the rise of land that has been stewarded by indigenous people for thousands of years, uh, some say tens of thousands of years, return to sort of that stewardship. Uh, Did you grow up in the Midwest? I did. I grew up in Illinois, uh, central and southern. So I was like one of maybe five brown kids in a school that was not more than 100 students. Uh, It was was a poor economic region. I would say it was probably lower middle class, like middle middle class, if not below that. Um, we were pretty poor. I didn't, I didn't grow up with my mom. I grew up with my dad, who's white. Um, yeah. But he made sure that I had every, every book or papers and pencils and crayons that 
I would need. So I had to do a lot of research about my mom's people and Indians in general, natives in general. And um, I mean, and that was before the time of the internet, right? So it was like literally going to bookstores or finding catalogs of books and like trying to find the right one. We didn't, we couldn't Google anything. We couldn't Google authors. So, um, but yeah. And then I, I took a non sequential route through college. We'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I did one term and then I was out of college and then I was back in college and found journalism. I, one of the things, so this, this goes like at the heart of what I do as a native person, I never saw myself on TV or I never heard native people on the radio and I never thought journalism was a thing that you could do. Right. Like, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know there were people that got paid like interview people and tell stories like but i was doing that my whole life anyway like i was talking to people writing stories creating stories drawing and i actually i ended up my degree's not in journalism it's in english and literature uh which i still have a very fond spot in my heart for and i was a big fan of film uh literary criticism and theory uh psychology psychoanalysis like i yeah i like a lot of different things so so i'm curious about I'm, I'm a little bit curious about like what it was like for you uh coming from outside of alaska coming to alaska like uh, i think that's got to be a really unique experience um especially for someone who's indigenous right so if we fast forward uh, about six seven eight years from that point of me moving to the quad cities uh some representatives i think one of them was sack fox and another one was uh, from another tribe, I think. And in Iowa, there's one federally recognized tribe, and we'll get into what that means a little later on, I think. Uh, but they came into the newsroom and they said, you know, like there's all these stories about our, like that we're doing with the tribe, we're doing these fundraisers for people, and they're not getting covered. Like we would like to see you cover our tribe a little bit more. And I'm like looking at our newsroom, and this has been a thing, like I've been one of like maybe two people of color in the newsroom. Um, outside of college. Um, and I was like, you're right. And the way that we're covering crime and the way we're depicting people of color, I'm like, something, something is off here. And I couldn't quite put a finger on it. But I, at that moment, I decided I wanted to move to someplace that I could do journalism, but do it in a way that I felt filled my heart. I know that's corny as it sounds, but I wanted to speak to other people who went through similar things that I did. I same ex, not same experience, but similar life experiences, um, and I wanted to lift those voices up. I wanted to help tell those stories. Those are not my stories to tell; they are the community stories. And so, it really that whole like the so that whole time I was still in Iowa and making that decision was like this huge crux for me and like just completely turned the way I thought about journalism on its head. So I decided I wanted to move to a place where um, indigenous people were a high percent of the population and that they were underrepresented in media. And so that looked like Southwest US, you know, New Mexico, Arizona, that looked like uh, Pacific Northwest, uh, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, that looked like going back to where my mom's people was from in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. 
Um, and I knew there were some tribes in New Orleans, but I, I wanted to get to like a large population center area. And I visited Alaska in 2013. Uh, my best friend had moved here for a job and she was like, you should come visit. I'm like, I'm coming next month. I bought my ticket, fell in love with it. Um, I grew up in an area that's very rural. Uh, we had like 40 acres of woods and creeks and like for a, a little brown kid who is only limited by their imagination. It was fantastic. I didn't realize we were poor until like, you know, high school or when social stratuses start happening. <laughs> um, and so like, I was like, uh, I wanted to move to Alaska at that point, but my dad was still in pretty, he was in pretty poor health. He was nearing end of life. And I didn't want to move so far away that I couldn't get back home to either mm -hmm. say goodbye or, or be there to pay my last respects. Um, and then he passed away in May of 2015 and it took me about six months to sort of like really come to terms with where I was at and what I wanted to do. And I called my stepmom and I said, I'm moving. I don't know where yet, but I'm moving. And Providence, the friend who I had come to visit had a job in KTO and had moved over to the energy desk and said, Hey, we have this opening think you're really great for it and it was the digital media editor and my whole career at, at the quad city times was a lot of like copy editing writing page design video audio so it kind of mixed everything i like doing a lot of different things i'm not very good at doing one thing but i like mm -hmm. doing a lot of things and so i applied and the whole process was pretty whirlwind got the job uh took about a month and a half to two months to move because moving to Alaska is a big deal and you want to make sure you get everything right. Um, and moved, moved to Juneau, Alaska. I fell in love with Southeast, fell in love with Juneau. You know, in my mind, it's a small town, like fit perfect yeah. for me, right? Like teeny tiny town and everything. Did it cost, did it cost you $81,000 to move here? I don't think it cost me that much. I think my move allowance like allowed for two thousand dollars, maybe. Okay. Just curious. Yeah. <laughs> and that like that like a fourth of, or the yeah a fourth of that was my my bike, my road bike that I brought up here that I still haven't ridden <laughs> since I moved it up here. But um, yeah, it did not cost me eighty one whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so what are, what are some of the stories you're following now? And, and actually I, before we get into that, I'd love to know, like, I don't know a lot about KNBA, um, you know, being in Southeast and it sounds like KNBA is part of this bigger radio system. And I, I, maybe you could explain that a little bit yeah. for us. Yeah. So, uh, it's Quantic, it's Quantic Broadcast Corporation and Quantic I'm told is the word, the Atna word for live air. I don't, you know, I don't know in what version, like, or what, how that word breaks down, but uh, that's a story our CEO tells. And it started in the 90s. I think it was like, it's probably getting close to like 25 years now. Uh, but it was sort of designed to be a company that, that trained and, and promoted, uh, you know, indigenous journalists and journalism and stories. Um, and Quantic Broadcasting Corporation has since split into, I think, one of the sibling um, the organizations is KNBA, the radio station. But there's also Native Voice One. There's National Native News, Native American Colleague, The River, which is our uh, streaming geared toward, like, 
it used to be like younger millennials, but now it's like sort of <laughs> like regular age millennials. It's gro- growing with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just really fell in love with like the fact that it was native leadership. It was going to be a different, a different challenge, I think. Um, and yeah, so KMBA has been there for 25, we'll say 25 years. I don't know exactly. Um, I couldn't tell you our listening numbers or what our, our QM is or how many website hits we get, but I know that we make a difference in the community when tell, people tell me that they heard me on the news or I really loved the story that you featured on news or thanks for doing this. Um, and I've really within the last four or five years really moved toward like a trauma informed and, and emotional labor style storytelling where like, I like, don't get me wrong. Like I, I used to live by a day deadline, um, page design. And I love the feeling of that, but I also really like taking the time and energy to really get to know a community or a people or a person. And so knowing how indigenous people have been covered in the past and seeing those pitfalls, I want to avoid those as much as possible. I want to avoid those pitfalls for all people, not just indigenous people, but the way that, um, you know, blacks and African Americans are covered in the media, the way that Asian Americans are covered in the media. And instead of like going in and community, like a community in a moment of crisis to tell a story like, no, I want to be in that community before that crisis ever gets there. Like, I want to tell those stories. And when those crises do happen, then that would inform the way that I would report on that community, not just parachuting in and telling the story from a very, excuse me, white perspective or, um, you know, cis perspective. Um, so it can, yeah. be, it can be a challenge, but it's, it's worthwhile. Yeah, I think I, you know, I worked at the Fairbanks Daily News Miner for six or seven years. And yeah, I think we we definitely try, you know, I think one of the difficulties with that is, you know, I think just nobody has the money to be able to, to travel like we would like to. But, you know, I think I saw some efforts there where we were trying to go out to communities in times other than, you know, when tragedy had just stroke, struck and where you know, I think because I think we were there was really a, um, uh, trying to trying to be aware of just the fact that you know we're kind of in some ways the media is exploiting the pain and suffering of a community. Um, Journalism by its inherent nature is extractive. Yeah, and you know that's the thing too. I, I think about it so much with you know how much people are giving in any sort of interview when they're agreeing to go on the record and put their name on anything. It, it's a it's asking a lot of them and. And so I think, you know, some of the, my, my happiest times, you know, sort of you're talking about kind of taking the time to get the story right is the sort of the times where I was sent out to communities and, you know, just to kind of be there or to be around something that is a positive event, you know, or at least if we're, if we have to go out for an event, like why not make it the time when the communities you know, doing something or it's, you know, hosting an Iditarod or it's hosting somebody or doing something like that. And those are like a lot of, I don't know, I think they are, for me, as coming into it from my, my own perspective, um, I think it's a, it, it's easier to also learn and to, to, to kind of come out of it with, I think, 
uh, hopefully a better understanding than if I'm coming in into the sort of tragedy heavy moments where you're on a deadline and you have to get yeah. a story out really fast. And so you make more mistakes. You make mm-hmm. less mistakes when you're a part of a community or you invest in that community. So I really try to impart that. I know there, there's a lot that I think the landscape is trying to change, but it's, it's been really difficult because much of the leadership of, of many outlets here, and that goes to public radio, that goes to newspaper outlets, that goes to TV are white. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of people come from outside and they spend two to three years here and then they go back to outside. And I'm assuming most of your listeners are Alaskan. So when I say outside, they know what I mean. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, having a reporter come in for three years and then leave like that can be traumatic for the community that's been reported on because now they have mm-hmm. to do the emotional labor of training a whole new person who doesn't even have a fundamental understanding of Indian law in the lower 48. Like they don't know how tribes are structured or, or how to figure out what, you know, like what stories to tell. And then I always say that like there's, there's American Indian, Native American 101. And then like Alaska Native is like a 303 class or it's like a 400 <laughs> level class because it, it, there's so much that's different between them. Um, yeah. And then you can't look at one community, like we can't look at, let's say, cake and make any sort of comparison to, uh, like emonic, right? Like they're vastly, they're completely different language structures and families and, and communities, and they have different experiences. And like, I think, you know, a lot of people come into Alaska thinking that Alaska natives are monolithic. Right. And that the small communities are monolithic, right. that every, every village is the same. I think, you know, that that's a really common mistake. And, and, and what you're saying applies not just to journalism, but to like education and I mean, in government and so much more, there's all these people that come in with like, two or, you know, spend two or three years here and then they're gone. It's always, it's such a bummer, you know, as someone who like has lived here their whole life, it's, it's a, it's a bummer to see someone show up and like invest time and energy and getting them up to speed and then have them leave. And it's always that letdown of like, Oh man, they're leaving. I felt so bad about leaving to, you know, like I, I like, I'm going to start crying right now because no. <laughs> um, no, like I seriously, because I met so many different people while I was there and in Southeast Alaska, I mean, there's Clinkett, Haida and Simsian, but even within those, those ethnic groups, like, those are so diverse and they have a completely separate history. And so Mm -hmm. you meet folks and you make connections with people. And then like, I'm like, look, I'm really sorry, but this is not working out for me in the way that I wanted to hear. But Mm -hmm. I am taking everything I learned from you and now I can take it with me and hopefully build from that. And, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, flights between Anchorage and Juneau aren't that bad. Uh, they're yeah. not that expensive and we have zoom. And so, um, I've really tried to stay connected with a lot of people. I still, I, I would not, I would not take that as a, <laughs> as a personal criticism. I think that you are very much still connected to this community and I see it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, like, I think that's like when someone moves to another part of the state, it's kind of a bummer because you don't get to hang out with them, but they like maintain their connections. And we're all kind of, it's such a small state. We're all still bumping into each other and careening off each other. So I, you know, I think that's, there's a little bit of a difference between moving to, to another community in Alaska and moving to like, you know, Florida. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly feeding the, the folks at KTO. I'm like, I don't know if KTO people listen to this, but I'm like, I'm constantly feeding story ideas. I'm like, you should do this story. You should do that story. And it goes back to what we were talking about, about how like 
they you shouldn't put it on the indigenous person to just cover indigenous communities because one that's like impossible you can't cut 229 federally recognized tribes in the state out of 574 in the nation like it's not quite half but it's close so like and then in between that you're talking about okay you have native corporations you have village corporations you have federally recognized tribes you have non-recognized tribes in the state of alaska which can, can you talk about that experience when you were working at k2 when you first came in did you feel a pressure to cover just indigenous stories um did they you know did what was it tough for you because like you you maybe wanted to go do like a D story or something <laughs> Um, I try, if I'm really close to something, I, I try not to be the person that tells that story. Um, I think uh, my friend Adeline, uh, it was like her first year, and I was like, you should go do a story about Platypus Con, because it's, eff- I don't know if we could swear, but it's effing amazing. Yeah, go for um, it. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, here, here are the things that you need to think about, because you're probably thinking of like Scrabble or Monopoly but there are like complex games and, and a wide array of people that are going to be there. And you're going to, um, I'm like, you should go to each table and experience like what those tables are like. So the mini painting table, you know, I, I think she played a game of like Catan or something. And, you know, like it's just like everything else. You build social relationships with people through games. So, but I was too close to that. I felt like, because um, I feel like Pat and I have like a fairly, you know, close connection in that, like, we could talk about movies, we could talk about comic books, like, we, there's so many of these things that, um, you know, we do to sort of support e- each other. And so I have to critically look at when should I do the story? When should ma- maybe I suggest the story for someone else? Or maybe that relationship is the perfect opportunity for me to tell that story. And yeah. it's not an easy line to like, it's not cut and dry. But I'm, That's hard in Alaska because everyone knows each other, right? right? And and part of the reason um, this conversation came up with another reporter, part of the reason I can tell the stories and report on the stories I do is because of the relationships I've built with the people in the communities. Uh, and I'm continuously working on that, right? Like, just because I'm Native, I can't go down to the Kenyatsi tribe and interview them about a story. There's lots of stories in that tribe that I would love to do, but I don't have a relationship with that tribe yet. And so I really need to like, I need to do the emotional labor and like invest in that community before I ever think about finding a story and and telling it. So same thing happens with the, like the Aleutians. Like I haven't done any, any stories about the Aleutians West or, you know, very few stories about Kodiak and the Sukpiak and the, the Aleutic. And so they're a little more hesitant to talk to me, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to try to build that relationship. And also those relationships build up and, and pay dividends over time, right? Like you can't just go in a community and report once and then leave. Like you have to continue to, like you have to keep feeding that community because if you don't, then like the next person is going to come in and like they're not going to be as receptive. So yeah, I think that like speaks really like well to like what I, one of the things I value most as, as being a reporter, which is I think that ultimately you know, I think I think reporters all try to admirably try to be neutral or, you know, kind of this idea of of being a fair person in the community. But I think like ultimately the reality is that we're all members of some of these communities. And, and you know, I'm a, I'm a member of Anchorage and a member of the Alaska community and a member of the political community. And 
ultimately, like what I think a lot of journalists really want is not just to be like, quote unquote, fair to about everything, but to be, you know, to see the community that we are a part of thrive and, and do well and be kind of held to a higher standard and, and to be able to bring everybody else along the way and to be able to reflect that community back and, and have reporting be reflective of everybody in the community. I think that's like a, ideally where it would all be. Obviously, I think we all have a lot, you know, especially sort of traditional media have a lot of work to do on that front. Um, and a lot of us have like a lot of um, reflection to do. I guess kind of I'm curious about, you know, how do you what are some of the recommendations you have for either new journalists or even journalists who've been around a long time who should be up better on these issues because I, I guess just one like sort of tangent is you know I, I also went to school in in the Midwest I went to school in Nebraska and one of the things that always really struck me about the difference between Alaska and Nebraska is that every almost every piece of land it seemed like in Nebraska like had a fence around it and it was sort of clearly delineated private property that you could you know you could see it from the air it was, you know the landscape had completely been transformed by farms. Um, and I came to Alaska and, and I, I remember looking out and being like, wow, look at all this land. It's just every, you know, ever you could go out and then really after, you know, spending a decade reporting on the politics and lands issues, there's still fences around it in a lot of ways and, and fences that are invisible or are created by kind of the governmental systems that are aligned, you know, overlapped on each other. And it, all of a sudden it really makes a lot of sense about why. Um, like lands issues especially are so critically important to indigenous people in Alaska and how a lot of the sort of negative sort of traumatic actions of the government are sort of wrapped up in a lot of those issues. And so I guess, how do you, but that was sort of stuff. I, it took me a decade to kind of stumble into that. Um, you know, what would you recommend to kind of people about some of these issues and how to kind of get educated and, and, and also in a way that isn't, Saying, hey, Trip, can you tell me exactly why racism exists in Alaska? Like, please go through all these <laughs> horrible experiences for me. Um, yeah, and even to go back when we were talking about lands and, and maybe to give uh, Pat a, a jumping off point for if we want to talk about legislation, we can. But uh, my favorite thing is when people show a map of the, the, the native language regions. And it's this beautiful, colorful map and like it covers all of Alaska and then that's that's it. That's all they show. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Why don't you put the state and national parks map up there? Because those natives don't like that long. That land was dispossessed of them by the park system, right? Um, and this is another colonial institution, and in which like is oppressed people because it is dispossessed people of land and access to land. Um, and then you put the uh, like the ANCSA map up of where they could actually claim land because at the time of ANCSA, you had how many years of already colonization and there were homesteaders claiming certain land, right? Um, and so by the time that ANCSA came about and it was an opportunity for those tribes to, or, and native corporations and village corporations to sort of stake out land, like they're taking piecemeal here and there. And over time, luckily some corporations have slowly, you know, nibbled back some of those, those pieces of land. And that's a huge accomplishment. Um, 
oh, you know, how do you tr how do you train someone? Um, I I run into the issue of like how much emotional labor am I willing to put into a person? Like how much am I willing to teach them? Uh, I've been become a pretty good judge of character. Like I can kind of get a sense from a, like when a person asks me a question of like, okay, how how well is this person invested? Um, because yeah, we, we meet people all the time at one press club and the next press club they're gone. And so when you're talking about Marine Mammal Protection Act or ANCSA and you're like, have you like, have you actually read a book? Like, have you like, I mean, there are a number of books. I have a, I have a list of books that I have in my like read to read recommended. Um, I'm like, start with this. Usually <laughs> I'm like, here's a link to my Google doc. You know, here, here you go. Go for it. Um, and so, I mean, there are books that I can recommend and, uh, for Turtle Island as a whole. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, Indigenous People's History of the United States. It's fantastic. Indigenous people have been here for tens of thousands of years by most accounts. So, like, we have just as much stake in the, the land as, as anyone that comes along and tries to stake a, a claim to it. Um, so that's a beautiful book to look at. Really understanding... Uh, Indian and I use the term Indian because uh, this is a legal definition. Um, I don't like to use it nor normally and outside of this context, but Indian policy and Indian law is governed by. Uh, I mean, we can go back to the Marshall decision um, and how that sort of rewrote the book as far as uh, the United States dominion over uh, Native people. So just like understanding that historical context, go back and, and study the history of the Marshall decisions, which there were three of them. And then like you can carry that from the forced migration uh, of the quote unquote trails of tears all the way up to Alaska. Um, there's a lot of like really great Alaskan historians who have done stories, Alaskan native historians who have done books. So read. Um, what what are a few just like bullet point like like you know reading things that you'd recommend? Um, I mean, I really like I like Willie Hensley's book Fifty Miles from Tomorrow, Th Thomas Berger's Village Journey, um, and and pe you will find people that find both of them problematic, but for me those are the two big ones for Alaska. Yeah. Um, really understanding like why Anxa was necessary and the problems inherent within that. Um, so those are the big two for Alaska, I would say. So you've been doing a lot of reporting on, um, on the house tribal affairs committee and this, um, I think they're the kind of interesting thing we maybe we'll talk about today is this house bill 123. And this deals with tribal sovereignty and, uh, Alaska's approach to it. And so, so from my understanding, the, you know, federal government through a series of treaties and arguments and court, you know, uh, court decisions views tribal nations as sovereign entities, right? Tri tribes are sovereign. Um, there you go. Tribes are inherently sovereign. They're inherently it's sovereign. It's whether or not governments, governments recognize that or not. Right. But our federal government does. For right? the most part. Some, For the most part. Yeah. Out of the 500, there are 574 federally recognized tribes. That means the government at some point has uh, made treaties with them or there's documentation of that. And then, of course, we get into Alaska and it gets a little complicated. But, right. um, yeah, so there are federally recognized. There are some that are recognized by the state. 
So they won't be federally recognized, but they'll be state recognized. And so that matters based on pools of money that they have. They're, they're, they can, so what does, what does this bill do that's, that's in particular? Uh, you know, I like to tell people that it doesn't really do a lot on the surface uh, because it's an obligation that I believe the state has from its get-go. Be- but because of its frontier, pioneer, independent background, it refuses to give up, you know, its its sovereignty or its land. Um, and that's particularly illustrated in this administration um, in the state government. And uh, so what it would do is of the 229 federally recognized tribes in the state of Alaska within the, the colonial and imposed borders of Alaska, uh, it would give a similar recognition to at the state level. So currently the state constitution does not recognize native peoples within the constitution itself. So HB 123 would amend state law to officially recognize uh, those tribes. Um, that recognition plays into the type of uh, money pools that they can pull from, the types of grants that they can you know, get. Um, it also, so federally recognized tribes in the state can have access to federal monies for certain things that the state might not have access to, right? So um, what it would do would, would, it would, that state recognition, I don't know that would really simplify the way the state and tribes interact because of the way tribes in the state currently interact. Um, currently there are, is contracting and compacting that is done between the two. Um, but what I think state recognition would would mean for our tribes is having equal representation and recognition between each other. So ideally, people people think that federal like tri- tribes answer to state governments, which answer to federal governments. But as we all three know um, in our civics that you know education is you know state law and federal law have a tendency to be fairly separate same thing happens like these sovereign governments of tribes um should be able to exercise aspects of that yeah and i think i think it gets confusing for people because like we think of these things like containers you know like yeah. the state of alaska is in the united states of america but like in a lot of ways states are actually uh in you know in a lot of ways states actually have some sovereignty in the way they can speak to the federal government and to one another um you know so these you know, tribal entities, when they interact with the federal government, it's like the federal government inter- doing business with the state of California or, or this, or the country of, of Canada or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. So the, you have to look at tribes as being sovereign governments in themselves. Um, and so I think the way the state sort of use it is like tribes are under the state, which has equal representation with the federal government. And the way it should be is all three should be like have the same seat at the table. Um, and the reason that would help the state, it would save the state a lot of money in the funding that it has to do to get services to various parts of the state, right? Like not everyone lives in Anchorage and Juneau. They live in various, you know, like. The, the way you frame that, the way you frame that as the way it would help the state feels like the kind of argument you would make in front of the legislature. And, but I would be curious, <laughs> I would be curious more like why is this important to you as an indigenous person why is this important to indigenous people in alaska why is this important to tribes you know like they want this change not for the good of the state necessarily but 
for the right. good of their people, right? So what is th- what is that? I think it's there? just a matter of being seen, right? Like you and I can meet at like the hangar and hang out and have a beer and we're equals. Um, you know, I think what is happening right now is is the state and the federal government are at one of those little tables at the hangar and there's a, it's a two-seater, right? <laughs> and there's no room for tribes to like, you know, to be able to step up. Now they can have the, the side conversation from the booth with the federal government. Um, but when it comes to state operations, like that whole relationship is very complex. And so for tribes, I feel like it would, it would give recognition to them. Plus it might open up doors for them to provide, get state money at that point and federal money to be able to provide for their communities, which could be healthcare, uh, education, public safety, child welfare. Um, and yeah, you're right that like the saving the state money is the, the argument that, uh, Nicole Borromeo, who's, uh, very good attorney and lead counsel for the Alaska Federation of Natives. Um, I think she's made that claim during testimony before. Yeah. Um, that That is, I mean, that, that's sort of the, the, the point, right, of House Bill 123 is that it's not, um, it's not prescriptive in, like, what's going to happen, right? right? It's just saying that you have, it's not saying that everyone is going to have to sign on to, like, for example, the child um welfare compact that has already been signed under the governor Walker. Um, But it kind of sets the ground for more stuff kind of like that, right? Where you do get into the quote unquote, helping the state, you know, by by basically taking over services and and seeing to the delivery in a more sort of, you know, culturally respectable or or culturally responsive sort of way. Right. Right. And and that's the whole point of compacting in itself is that, um, whereas a contract might be like Matt and I might enter a contract and Matt's like, Hey, I need my, my, my bathtub replumbed or whatever. And so we come to a, a, an agreement on price and deadline. And when that's accomplished and there's very specific bullet points that I have to do to plumb Matt's bathtub compacting is, Oh, we all need our bathtubs plumbed. So, you know, Matt and I might go to Pat and say, hey, we have these needs. You have this money and this, you know, some of these, uh, not services, but you you can provide support in some way. But we know our bathtubs best because we're the ones that bathe in them. So a compact is sort of, it's not a handshake agreement, but it's kind of close. So there's a much, it's an umbrella sort of compromise that we all sort of agree to. and uh some like some tribes can sign on and some tribes may sign on some tribes may be like nope we're happy with the way it is or we think we can do it better this way um so i think there's like 160 tribes or organizations that signed on to that child welfare compact um that could be a whole nother podcast y'all like i'd love to get into the nitty-gritty on that um thankfully that is moving again um and so state recognition might alleviate the need to be able to do this or for tribes to be able to come to the state and say, Hey, we really need this. Like we need to improve public safety. Um, but because that's governed by maybe a department at the state level, we don't necessarily have jurisdiction. Uh, the roads are a really good example. Um, and in Petersburg, the, the tribe there can get federal money to fix a road, but because roads are the jurisdiction of the state, the state's like, nah, you can't do that because we have control over that. So 
um, that's kind of a very like, I guess, abrasive example, um, and it's kind of boiled down. But that's that's the thing that you're running into, right? You like you have jurisdictions, so because the state well, has jurisdiction and, over something, and you have these, and you have these like specialties, like you're, you mentioned earlier that you know cake is different than a monarch, right. and like their needs are different. And I think that like you start in, the more ability you give them to to take care of their own individual needs, the better off they're going to be. Right. Right. And so like compacting is, is the idea is that uh, the state provides funding and support to regions to be able to provide for those communities specific needs. Right. Um, what might change is with tribal recognition, state recognition is that the tribes now can go to the state and say, Hey, you have some state money that you're making available to fix certain things, if we had state recognition and we had jurisdiction over that, we could take care of that ourselves. Um, and so uh, that really gets to the conflict right now um, because the state largely is so uh, iron-fisted around that whole idea of like its control or its sovereignty, and it wants to make sure it doesn't lose that. And that that can get splintered off into a number of different conversations. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because... You know, we talk about them kind of have wrapping their arms around all these different issues and, and saying, you know, you know, butt out. You know, these are my things. And at the at, at the exact same time, you have, you know, a lot of conservative politicians who are saying, well, why aren't the native corporations taking care of X, Y, or Z? Kind of with, you know, there's a really fundamental misunderstanding there. I think of what a native corporation's role is. In, in sort of addressing these sort of things, which is it's a it's a big company is yeah. at the end of the day, right? And um, you know we're not asking you know Fred Meyer and Walmart to do these sort of social services because I think we don't anyway. Sorry, it's a, <laughs> the big rabbit hole to get down, but I think it's there's just it's interesting to see sort of a dichotomy of or I guess a hypocrisy really of of people saying you know, of opposing tribal sovereignty while also simultaneously saying that tribal organizations and tribal uh, native corporations need to also be more responsible for these people. Right. For the and people, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you you hit it right on the head. And that's that's the thing. Like, that's why Tiffany Zolkowski, that's why Nicole Borromeo, that's why Walthall Gidock, Barbara Blake is, like, going to bat on the, like, for this testimony because... They, they recognize the power that tribes could have if the state would recognize that, you know, the state recognition doesn't really do anything in regards to the federal recognition or the sovereignty of the tribes themselves, but it could go a long way to help fix some of the issues that have become problematic over the years. And I think fundamentally it boils down to something you said about being seen, you know, it's like, it, it's really easy for me as a white person in Alaska to just kind of live on this land and pay my rent or whatever. And like, I saw this thing the other day, so, and someone tweeted this and said, why am I paying rent on land? My people have lived on for 10,000 years. And I'm like, Oh, Hey, that's a kind of an interesting way of looking at things. It's like, you know, we've got, you know, some of the poorest people in the state are the people who have lived here the longest. And that's a little bit upside down. Yeah. And I, I think at the heart of it, it's this Western idea of ownership versus like an indigenous sense of belonging. Right. And those two are vastly opposed to each other. And uh, I mean, that that's really like what we're getting down to um, is the fact that, yeah, uh, indigenous people have been here for tens of thousands of years. 
white colonial settler, whether we're talking about east or west, you know, we're looking at what, 400, 500 years for Alaska. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's just such a weird thing. Um, and I think that, you know, really when it comes down to it, like, we just want to be seen. Like, Native people just want to be seen. Uh, not only that, but we, we, we appreciate it when people take the time to recognize that we're here and that, that there are communities who can offer, you know, cultural understanding and support. You know, I guarantee you, if you're good with the Clinkett family and herring season comes in, like, you, you know, you're not going to be at a loss. Like, the, the thing is, is like, you know, the, typically they will provide for their people first, but the you know, because there is a surplus, they don't want that to go to waste. And so, you know, if you're close with a family, like you're part of the family, I'm not saying you're, you're adopted or anything, but. Um, well, and that's kind of where community grows from, right? Yeah. Cause you've got this like little family units that kind of adopt extra family people. And then you've got a community a pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned that too, because, you know, I guess uh, maybe the most sort of public or sort of most, recognizable example of that right is is with the vaccination efforts that have been going on yeah. where um you know much of the success that alaska has seen right is driven by the the uh, tribal healthcare organizations and, and not and not just that but also the flexibility that they are afforded under the federal law to be able to determine how to best use and how to best and most effectively use the, their allocation of vaccines. Right. And that, I mean, that's from the Indian health services, right. Where they're like, Hey, we have these vaccines. We want it. We want to get them to you because you are going to know best how to get them distributed to the people that need them. Um, and that, yeah, when we're talking sovereignty, that's really what we're talking about. You know, South central foundation is not a tribe. It's a native owned health organization. Um, but the IHS recognized that they had, you know, could have, so like they have sovereignty in certain aspects and they're going to be able to deliver the resources at a better level than like the high level federal level. Um, and I won't get into it too much, but, you know, part of the story that came out was this, uh, disparagement between tribes and tribal organizations distributing the vaccine versus the level that the state was doing it at, because at that time, you know, uh, people who aren't necessarily tribal members in the state, um, who worked for SEF or a sister organization was able to get vaccinated because they, rec you know, IHS recognized the sovereignty and the ability for SEF to be able to, you know, handle that distribution versus the state, which I think was still at what, 65 and older or 75 yeah. and older at that time. And so, yeah, I think, I think for a, a lot uh, corporations and organizations are, are maligned when I don't think people want to open their eyes and, and recognize that the, the work and the value that they have and the work and the value that they do for their communities. Um, and so I think that story is a really good example of that. Um, I, I wish that story had been framed much better. And, and it could have it could have been a better story. Yeah. Um, so it, so it ended up feeling like, you know, you look and it wasn't, you know, the success of native health organizations in this isn't wasn't unique to Alaska either, right? I mean, you sort of saw it around the country. And I thought, hell, you know, this is like a good, this is like a model that we ought to be applying to everyone. You know, everyone should have, you know, 
you know, and I'm not saying that like the Indian Health Service is adequate or the federal investment in these programs is that anywhere near adequate, but having this kind of um, sort of consumer sort of driven, you know, member driven health investment in health services is a way to make it effective. You know, it's, it's sort of that, um, you know, we get back to talking about journalism, you know, these are groups that are, you know, in touch to their community are responsive and have some stake in it. And I think like, instead of, yeah, complaining about it, I think a lot more of it could work, you know, that would be a great model for everybody else to have kind of something that is so responsive and so, um, you know, responsible at the same time. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that AHS story like really hit at a good time because don't get me wrong. AHS has its own problems. Um, and that distribution also has its, its own problems and that, um, you know, obviously getting vaccination, uh, vaccines to, um, I hate using the role in remote to describe communities and, and, you know, um, in Alaska because, uh, that's so othering to me. Um, and also the fact that like, you know, you could sign up via web when we know that we have, mm. uh, digital and broadband and cell issues here in the state. Um, but you know, you, you sort of brought up the like native healthcare system. And like, I like to bring up the fact that the reason that that became a thing is because the state and the federal government weren't delivering on services that it should have been delivering on right, yeah. based on previous promises. And so it really was the work of the tribes and the native corporations sort of coming together um, and having an idea of like what healthcare service and providership could look like. And now, you know, again, that system is not perfect, right? Like there are issues with that system. Um, but by and large, you know, the, I think, the successes far outweigh the negatives. So I'd like to step back just a second and um, put a pin in House Bill 123. Sure. Like, what do you, um, I, I know it's sort of still in process, but you've been following this a lot closer than than Matt and I have. What do you see for its future this session? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't cover a lot of legislature. Uh, I end up like feeling like tribal affairs is a really good avenue for me because it's a really good lens for me to look at these larger issues from um, bills like this have been introduced before and have died um, in legislation. Uh, when I talked with one source what, about the story, uh, I was like, well, how optimistic are you that this will happen? And I think it's because it was introduced early enough in the session and there, because of the tribal affairs, and the Bush caucus and, and the support that it has now, they were pretty optimistic, right? I'm a little pessimistic once we, we insert a six foot four uh, question mark into that equation because I know how they might think that is threatening to the state's rights and ability to do what it wants to do. So, yeah. so what I'm hearing is maybe it will squeak by the legislature and then get vetoed potentially if it is lucky enough to get that far. And, and I mean, you know, the, the administration has ties to Alaska native communities. Right. And so maybe we'll get lucky and that, you know, there will be a push um, from uh, I guess below, if we're looking at six fours being the the, the watermark, um, that maybe maybe uh, 
you know, we can we can grow the heart of the Grinch just a little bit, like maybe two sizes, and yeah. get it passed, and that would be beautiful. the The one downside to this legislation is it does not recognize the unrecognized tribes, right? Like there are tribes in the state that are not federally recognized. And so House Bill 123 only provides state recognition to those that are already recognized by the federal government. So there's a tribe in um, near Dillingham and there's a tribe in um, Seward that are not federally recognized. And they rely a lot on the native corporations that are in the area and the village corporations to help sort of support that. Um, I'm also not sure how it will affect the the five so-called landless tribes, the tribes that weren't able to uh, grab land during ANGSA and that are still fighting for that that sort of recognition on that level. So, um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. But um, would it open, I think the nice thing about this legislation is it would open up an avenue for those state, those tribes to get state recognition, right? And so at least uh, they might be able to get some funding and services, uh, uh, like a pool from the state that they could pull from. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, there are never any easy solutions. If they were easy, they would have been done 200 years ago, but um, it's, it's a step in the right direction in my book. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know. I think talking about the the House Special Affair or, spe, or Special Committee on Tribal Affairs has um, been really a really critical sort of source of really breaking through a lot of the misconceptions and, and sort of misinformation about tribes and the tribal structure in Alaska. Because you know, I think you, you kind of look at it so so far, you know, or you look back even a few years ago where you know a lot of these issues were. You'd be lucky if they got mentioned in the committee hearing once all year and being able to have a platform for it. You know, I, I've been able to watch it where you do see the light, you know, flick on in a conservative pro mining legislator's head where they go, oh, shoot, you know, this this is not, you know, not only is the current system not fair, but it's also, you know, there's, you know, the solutions to it are actually pretty equitable to all involved. And I think kind of being able to, sort of create the relationships in the community and the, in the legislature to be able to sort of break past some of those kind of reflexive responses, you know, I think is, is been really meaningful and you've seen some of that. Yeah. I'm, again, you know, a lot to, a lot left to be desired with all of this, but um, there's been, I think, you know, some market, I don't know if progress is probably too strong of a word for this legislature, but there's been, you know, some steps or thoughts about steps forward that I think are, at least, you know, at least everyone's going to be operating on the same set of facts and the same sort of set of understanding and historical understanding. I think that is, that's all right, I guess, yeah. yeah. I, I think, you know, the misconception, there's a, there's a huge mis misconception that, like, tribes and, and native corps, because they're indigenous, they lean left. But as we know, there are corporations who are largely uh, trying to, uh, and have their foot in the extraction door, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that I'm trying to impart on journalists who come into it and see, like, you know, extraction and environmental journalism is like, we're the good guys and we're fighting for this. It's like, but at the expense of tribal sovereignty? And so for me, like, this is where I'm going to disagree with people 
and that like I think the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation was right to pull out of AFN based on the things that were happening at that time and what they were doing. Um, you know, uh, Doyon is another good example that has uh, mining subsidiaries and there's some land mm-hmm. that they have um, holes and plans to drill holes and explore. Um, I mean, we're looking at a weird like gumbo of issues and policies and and just things that have have been stirring for a long, long time. And it's nice. It's a nice, deep, dark color. Um, and as we all know with gumbo, that's that's a good thing. Um, but you know, when you try to sort it out, it becomes it becomes really difficult because th- things are things are infused and they're not quite as clear and crisp and clean um, when you're reporting on them. But the yeah. the you know oftentimes that's that's the way people want to look at it. Yeah, that's interesting. That you bring up resource development and extraction, and like I, I think there's this. Uh, there are a lot of people that don't think that native corporations do any of that, and I, I think don't recognize that that's part of their business model, and and that it maybe think it's almost antithetical. But um, it's also a weird situation for colonists to say you can't develop your land. Land, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. and so it creates a it, it does create some really um, you know hard questions. Like we we all want. To be to be able to live somewhere that's like healthy and uh, you know not not toxic to our children, right. uh, we and want our, sustainable. Our, yeah, we want our fish to to live uh, to survive for the next harvest. You know all of that kind of stuff. Um, but but also there's like this economic motive of uh, native corporations that is very real. Yeah, and I mean. I think you hit it on the nose when you, you were talking about how we can't look at this as being a monolith, right? And native corporations are the same way. They're built to be for profit to benefit their shareholders in whatever way that they can. Uh, shareholders have the opportunity to have elections and vote for board members and go to board meeting. You know, like they, they have opportunities to, to stake if they have issues or uh, conflicts with something that's going on, they, they have those opportunities. Um, what we've ran into is early on in their, their, their life cycle, I guess, native corporations were sort of pushed into like trying to be this corporate model. And, you know, all you see Alaska within the last couple of years has really changed its focus that it wants to make sure that it's supporting companies, that it's supporting people, its people, and that extends to places like Washington and Oregon. And so you see this shift in resources um, from, from some native corporations. I won't say all, but you, have, you do see a cultural shift in that. Now, is that to say that Sea Alaska uh, does not have its detractors? No, because they absolutely do. But um, it's a good example of like just because things are one way doesn't mean that that's always been the way or that's always the way that they're going to be. And sovereignty for me is the tribe and the so I, I consider native corporations sovereign in that they they can make the decisions that they feel are best for their people. Um, they're not a government structure. Um, and so that creates an issue um, that we can cover at some other point. but, um, you know, the idea is like to recognize that, you know, white people have been coming into areas and telling people of color how to live their life and what they need to do for centuries now, right? Like this is, 
not a new story. And I think the big takeaway for me in all of this is that, you know, like we need to recognize that like we have been operating in the system of oppression and that has been a detriment to peoples, uh, particularly people of color, black indigenous people of color. Um, and how do we fix that? Um, and I asked that question and I'm sort of paraphrasing other people because they're always like, how do we fix journalism? Like, yeah, it's doing what it was designed to do. It started out as a system of oppression, like yeah. wealthy landowners, business owners owned papers and they used it to dispossess people of land and malign people to their benefit. Right. And so how do we fix a system of oppression that quote unquote works? How do we fix the justice system? Because it is doing what it was designed to do. Um, and I like to do the, the anarchist uh, native thing where it's like, we could, you know, we should tear it all down. We should dismantle it and rebuild it from new, but the people that are in power are going to hold those systems of power. Um, and so where do we go from there? So are you saying incremental change is more realistic than sudden rebellious <laughs> overthrow or yeah I, i'm being also, facetious also in, but but incre incremental change is so slow and painful too because you're like why don't we just change it now right so are you happy with the direction we're going do you want to like accelerate things what what do you well, let me see if i can put it this way yeah um so probably i would say a majority of your listeners are going to put it in a perspective in that like you know the state's been in, in existence for how long uh, 75 years <laughs> like or so. a blink of an eye. A blink yeah. of an eye. Yeah. Indigenous people have been here for tens of thousands of years. And so when they're looking at providing for their communities and their people and, and their culture, they're not looking at it by, like, generations. Like, they're looking at it in centuries and millennia. And, you know, the fact that we are moving forward on this, we are moving the needle, even if it might be a microscopic... Um, movement we are moving the needle and i do feel good about where we're going is are we getting there fast enough i don't know but if i were to set out today and try to walk to uh let's say juno and that's that's also facetious but if i were to try to do that i don't know what that timeline looks like if i were to set a deadline for that there's no way i would hit that deadline um but that doesn't start until I walk out the door or I take that first step. Right. And so if it's one person taking that step, it's going to be a long ass journey. But if it's four, five, a thousand, 10,000, like if we all push that needle, we're going to move it at a much faster rate. I, I, I guess my dream is that one day we get there one, one day I'll walk to Juno. No, that's not true. But, <laughs> but we'd love to have you back. Right. I'll, I will be back. Don't get me wrong. Um, but me walking there is probably not going to be a thing that happens. Well, I hope that you get here uh, eventually, uh, both physically and metaphorically. So uh, thank you for, yeah, thanks. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that you want to uh, chat about before we go, but I think that we've we've been chatting for a while, so maybe we should kind of start finding our, our wrap up. I, 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 I think I can. And this is, this is going to be a big thing is like, I think oftentimes, and this goes beyond just like house bill 123, but this is my general postulation that, uh, oftentimes when we make mistakes, the people that we harm, we also, we often try to invite them to table to the table 
to try to help us fix it. But we're the ones that started the problem, right, in the first place. And so, like, that can be really harmful. And so I do encourage everyone, and this goes for indigenous or not, you know, to do, I call it emotional labor, um, because it's work. Emotional labor is hard labor. Before you ask someone to educate you or to ask them to come to the table and it's like, oh, tell us what we did wrong. Like, you should really do the emotional work yourself to begin that and then let that inform how you move from there on. Like if you like if you know something's wrong, think about maybe what that thing is and why it is before asking right. for the solution. Yeah, I mean it's it's like doing your homework, right? right. You got to think about it a little yeah. bit. Well, you know, with a lot of the conversations we're having right now, kind of in the grand grander scheme of talking about like racial justice, is yeah, I mean, there's so much of it. I think is asking our one friend of color, you know, well, I didn't know this was racist. Is this has anybody ever been racist to you? And it's like yes. This this the very conversation is a little racist, you know. It's like, um, I I think, you know, I think a lot of people of color, um, you know, experience this stuff every day, and it's a reality, and it's a very painful reality. And being able to give them the courtesy of not having to relive relive it just to prove to you that it exists is, I think, a really big step. And I think, you know, I, I you know, credit to a lot of white allies out there who are you know can at least you know grab grab their you know well-meaning but misinformed friend and and say look you know before you go ask your person of color i can i can do the talking for them and i can t- i can at least give you the basic ground rules of yeah racism exists and it's like a, a facet of a lot of different things in our in our daily life and it, in ways that are frequently invisible um to the people that are benefiting from them my my favorite is when those so-called uh, well-meaning allies try to center themselves in that discussion. And that just, I mean, if I had a wig, I would flip it at that point because <laughs> like that just drives me nuts. And it's just like, you know, here, here here's a group of, of people of color who are expressing um, that maybe, maybe a word that you chose is wrong. Um, one of my favorites now is I've been changing uh, the, the phrase of substance abuse to substance use or struggles with substance use because abuse is one of these things where it's like it's such a negative connotation but how many times have we self-medicated right like Mm -hmm. um and that's not that's not necessarily abuse maybe it's not prescribed by a doctor but um it's you know substance use and so like i guess just listen the big part like show up and listen but don't be performative about it. Don't like, don't center yourself in that. And I think that will go a long way with showing, it's like showing up in a community, right? Like investing in a community um, rather than trying to like exert your control over an aspect of your, of that life. I guess that's sovereignty, right? We're talking about, we're talking about the same thing. Like don't, don't try to center yourself just because, you think your perspective is right or your lived experiences are in line with the discussion. I think some of that comes from managing discomfort. Like people want to they like do something about the discomfort they're feeling in that moment. And so to, to like squish it down, they're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to fix this. This is fixed. So my favorite <laughs> is stirring that and making people uncomfortable 
Um, and that, that happens when I, when I say journalism is a system of oppression. And they're like, what? No, never. I'm like, Let, let's start from, you know, the, the first newspapers on the East Coast and move all the way. Like, they have systematically been used to deliver racist messages, um, you know, and even within the last, you know, uh, within living memory, we'll say, we'll say I'm that old, within living memory, newspapers have covered uh, communities of color with a vastly different lens than what we're, I think what we're looking at communities of color now. Um, and I mean, it's, it's fragmented, but we see that every day here yeah. in Alaska. Yeah. I mean, like I, I see that, I see that in the national news. I see that in the local news. I see that, uh, you know, in a lot of different ways, that's definitely not like an old thing that we can remember. It's <laughs> right. like happening. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's present memory, but I think, you know, the people who are trying to make the change, um, and I, I, I'm going to give like some shout outs if I can. Um, yeah. I might, I might plug another podcast, so I'm sorry, but no, I, it's not a competition. <laughs> I, it is. And I'm going to be first. Um, <laughs> but like part of the reason that I think you're seeing so many podcasts, um, and other outlets sort of pop up that are, uh, centered around communities is because those communities haven't been fairly represented. Um, and it's not that they've been underrepresented. It's because the white perspective has been overrepresented. Um, they, they've always been there, right? They've always been there. And so it's not that they're underrepresented. It's just that we have an over overrepresentation of, of white media. Um, but I mean, coffee and quack is one of my favorites. Alice Kanik Glenn is, is my one of my good friends and I love her to death. Um, and we've had some hard conversations, right? Because we come from different lived experiences. Um, that woman is hella smart. If you ever get a chance to talk to her, uh, I definitely recommend it. But she started coffee and quack because she didn't see, um, you know, herself sort of represented in, in media. I think Jackie Lambert started a, a magazine um, because of the same issues. Denali, and I can't remember Denali's last name, but On the Lands is another one. Um, that's a good example. And that, I mean, there are any number of things. Like in Juno, you got Arius Hoyle doing like rap videos and music, and he's really good. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, he's good at that and he loves doing it. But I'm, I'm guessing part of that is that like him growing up, he probably didn't see that representation as much. And so... Like there's really this, as 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 shitty as colonization has been, it has really infused and sort of like bred this idea of we're just gonna freaking do it ourselves because no one else is gonna do it right, um, and so there there's that you know I'm a board member for the Native American Journalists Association so I'd love to plug that. Uh, we have a uh, professional membership, which is the native membership, but we also have the uh, associate membership, which is really anyone. If you cover indigenous issues at all, um, you can be an associate member. I mean, those are the big ones. Quantic is constantly working to try to um, develop younger and younger talent and develop shows. And it's gone through its own sort of ups and downs, but, you know, we're trying. I'd love to hire a full-time staff member to work with me and news, mostly just to pitch ideas off of, but also to like have someone else who um, is like me, has brown skins, native, and and we can sort of continue this effort and this movement forward. Um, I mean, there are any number of podcasters. The the Rambler 
uh, which is, uh, and I only know them from their Twitter Twitter name, which is Jay the War Pony, J A E, and she is a Black Indigenous person um, who is just really, really. I love following them on Twitter because it's just a really insightful um, feed, and it's one of those that I've got the notifications turned on for. Uh, the Red Nation, which is a Nick Estes project, which is another podcast. I said I was going to plug one. I'm plugging multiple. Um, and that that's really good. Uh, this Land, which I think is a Rebecca Nagel podcast. Connie Walker. Oh, my God. I love Connie. Uh, Connie's a CBC, former CBC journalist, did the Missing and Murdered podcast, Finding Cleo, and is now working on another podcast. Um, and the thing that I'm finding when, when I'm talking with folks is that, like, we're all doing this because nobody else was doing it or the way it was being done was wholly inappropriate. And um, it's really taken people to take the initiative and, and sort of push the envelope a little bit and create media that we all like we love and is applicable to more than just like a niche media mm -hmm. uh, native audience. So those would be the big ones. Um, yeah. Great. I yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I'll have to, I'll get, I some of those I've heard of and some of them I haven't. And, uh, I know Arius, I love his music. I think that's a great recommendation, yeah. but, uh, yeah, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for being here and call that an episode. My, my pleasure. Like you want me back or if, like you want to talk about any of these other issues, uh, we can. Yeah, I mean, I think we had like a, a list of like three or four other items we didn't even get to touch on. So we'll have to have you back for another one. Yeah. Yeah, good. I like it. All right. Uh, well, goodbye, Alaska. Goodbye, Alaska. See you later. Bye, Alaska.